hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. I didn't know exactly what Esquire was, but I knew it was important, and I started reading it. And as a young man who had never been to New York, but knew that one day he was going to go to New York and live in New York, it became sort of my guidebook to how to become the kind of person who would leave Tennessee or somewhere else, move to New York, and be a successful something, preferably employee of Esquire. This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Deborah Bishop. I'm Sean Plotner. I'm Patrick Mitchell. We're 18 episodes into this podcast, and while several interesting themes have surfaced, one of the more unexpected threads is this. Nearly all magazine-inclined men dream of one day working at Esquire. Some women, too. Turns out, that's also true for today's guest, which is a good thing because that's exactly what David Granger did. But all this time, I'd been thinking about Esquire, longing for Esquire. It had been my first magazine as a man, and I'd kept a very close eye on it. Unless you're old enough to remember the days of Harold Hayes and George Lois, for all intents and purposes, David Granger is Esquire. And in his nearly 20 years atop the masthead, the magazine won an astounding 17 ASME National Magazine Awards. It's been a 72-time finalist. And in 2020, Granger became a card-carrying member of the ASME Editor's Hall of Fame. When he arrived at Hearst, he took over a magazine that was running on the fumes of past glory. But he couldn't completely ignore history. Here, he pays homage to his fellow Tennessean, who ran Esquire when Granger first discovered it in college. What Phil Moffat did was this magical thing that very few magazine editors actually succeed at, which is to show their readers how to make their lives better. And while he's doing that, while he's providing tangible benefit, he also coaxes readers to stay around for just amazing pieces of storytelling or amazing photo displays or whatever it is, all the stuff that you do because it's ambitious and because it's art. Upon taking over at Esquire, Granger's instinct was to innovate almost compulsively. Over the years, he's introduced some of Print's most ambitious and imitated packaging conceits. What I've learned, funny joke from a beautiful woman, the genius issue, what it feels like, and drug of the month, as well as radical innovations like an augmented reality issue and the first print magazine with a digital cover. Over and over, those who've worked with Granger stress his sense of loyalty. Ask any of his colleagues and you'll hear a similar response. David Granger is one of the finest editors America has ever produced. He also happens to be an exceptionally decent human being. At his star-studded going-away party, after being let go by Hearst, Granger closed the evening with a toast that said it all. This job, he said, made my life as much as any job can make anybody's life. It had almost nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with what you guys did under my watch. I've done exactly what I wanted to do, the only thing I've ever wanted to do. For the last 19 years, I'm the luckiest man in the world. We talked to Granger about retiring some of Esquire's aging classics, like Dubious Achievements and Sexiest Woman Alive, his surprising and life-changing Martha Stewart moment, and what really went wrong with the magazine business. So David, let's start with how you got your big break early in your career. Which big break are you speaking of? 
Well, that would be the legendary magazine, the title that helped launch the careers of numerous publishing greats, from David Granger to Roger Black to Kermit the Frog. Uh, you're speaking of Muppet Magazine? Muppet Magazine. Tell us your Muppet story. Well, I went to the Radcliffe publishing course in the summer of 1982. Got out of that, moved to New York, was homeless for six or seven weeks. Eventually managed to hit the big time when I got a job for, I believe, $10 an hour writing chapters in a gardening book. So I wrote chapters. They provided me all the research. I wrote chapters on bonsai and pruning and perennials and annuals and stuff like that. And that was my big break in publishing. Mm. But shortly after that, I somehow managed to get an interview with Katie Dobbs, who was the editor-in-chief and the only editorial employee of the startup magazine, Muppet Magazine, the quarterly magazine, the quarterly humor magazine for children aged 8 to 12. And I was Katie's assistant. And I was not a particularly good assistant because I wanted to do absolutely everything else. I sat in on writers' meetings. I worked in the design department. I did absolutely everything but answer Katie's phone. And after 18 months, she let me know one day that she thought it would be better for me if in the next two weeks I found my next opportunity. Oh, my. She didn't bring in the cookie monster to do that? <laughs> no, no, though I did get to play Rolf the dog, though not in video or audio. I just wrote in his voice as our book reviewer. Ah, ha, ha, book reviews. Did see that Kermit was on the masthead, and I believe he had a column in most. Kermit, I think, was the boss, and I think he wrote the editor's letter most months. That was quite a while ago, and it was, as you say, quite the launching pad. Yes, indeed. Well, let's back up even more now and see if you can tell us a little bit about growing up. Where'd you grow up, and what'd your parents do? I grew up around the United States. My dad was a social worker. He and my mom were both native Californians. My mom's still alive. My dad's not. And we lived in various places in California when I was little, but I mostly remember San Diego, where we lived until I was 11 years old. My dad had successfully gotten a couple of master's degrees, one in social work, one in public administration, and then decided he needed a PhD. So we moved to Wellesley, Massachusetts, where he got a PhD at Brandeis. Lived there for three years. Moved to Lexington, Kentucky, where he had his first big academic job as associate dean of the graduate school of social work. And then after two years there, we moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, where I finished my high school career. I went to my senior year of high school there and then went to the University of Tennessee, basically because it was the only place that had to take me. So my mom was a very effective housewife, but once her kids were all gone, she started the first of what became three different organizations and this started in the, I guess, the early 80s, the first one at the University of Tennessee, called Human-Animal Bond at Tennessee, where she trained humans and their pets to work with professional therapists, first in nursing homes and stuff, but then at the Patricia Neal Trauma Center at the University of Tennessee with the early days of trying to understand what autism was, all sorts of mental health issues. And she had a volunteer network of like 275 people in Tennessee, then recreated that when they moved to Colorado. So she didn't work when I was growing up, but worked for 45 years in animal-assisted therapy after that. What kind of early awareness did you have of magazines or media in general? I think I had the average awareness growing up in the 60s and 70s of things like Reader's Digest. 
Humor and Uniform was one of the, my favorite pages in any magazine. And then I started with highlights and all that kind of stuff. The first magazine I remember subscribing to was Sports Illustrated, but I didn't really think much about magazines until I was in college when these two boys from the University of Tennessee who were about 10 years ahead of me, I graduated, and they'd started this little publishing company in Knoxville called 1330, I believe it was at the time. Whittle Communications, what was it? It was 1330. Patrick and I are very familiar with it. But then it didn't become Whittle Communications after that? Anyway, they bought this thing called Esquire, and I was a junior in college. I didn't know exactly what Esquire was, but I knew it was important, and I started reading it, and as a young man who had never been to New York, but knew that one day he was going to go to New York and live in New York, it became sort of my guidebook to how to become the kind of person who would leave Tennessee or somewhere else, move to New York, and be a successful something, preferably employee of Esquire. What Phil Moffat did was do this magical thing that very few magazine editors actually succeed at, which is to show their readers how to make their lives better. And while he's doing that, while he's providing tangible benefit, he also coaxes readers to stay around for just amazing pieces of storytelling or amazing photo displays or whatever it is, all the stuff that you do because it's ambitious and because it's art. But if that's all you do, then your Harper's and your circulation is 100,000. So, I mean, Phil had a magic. I think his era was my first era of Esquire. And looking back on it, having worked at Esquire for a while. I think it was one of the better eras of Esquire. As a matter of fact, Patrick and I were both working for 1330 at that time. In the 80s? Yeah. I was an intern in 83 and oh. went to work there after I graduated. And you know, Patrick and I started, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, we started our own little, it was mostly Patrick's idea. We had a monthly paper, the Knoxville paper. This was 85. And we put out a few issues, had a little bit of success, certainly got our hands dirty. And Whittle and Moffitt, Chris Whittle and Phil Moffitt, one day called us up to their executive suite, as it were, in Knoxville and claimed they want to meet us. And we thought, hey, someday we're going to be the publishers of Esquire. Right. So who knows? If things had turned out differently, you could have ended up working for us. I'm sure that would have been better than working for her. So at the University of Tennessee, what did you major in? I majored in two things, English and history. And did you practice or get involved in journalism in any way at that time? I never did. I didn't take a single journalism course. I left the University of Tennessee and went to graduate school at the University of Virginia. Eventually got a master's in English, but I'd, I'd never studied journalism. Why do you ask? And what was your thinking in terms of any kind of so-called career path at that time? Did you have ambitions to do something specific? I went to the University of Virginia sort of thinking that maybe I'd teach. And you know, my father had been an academic, seemed kind of natural. And I was quickly disabused of that notion. I got to UVA, I was deeply intimidated by my professors and stuff. And I was so intimidated that I went before classes started and I read as many of the papers that they'd written as I could, their academic papers and stuff. And almost as soon as I started reading those things, it was like, wow, this is not something I want to do. <laughs> they seem small. And I think that's when I first started thinking about what I could do that seemed significant or artistic, but that had a broader reach than what your typical 
professor could have. And I had a roommate in my second year. I think his name was Paul Birdsall. And he had a subscription to Esquire. And I would read it when I was in high school and your boys bought it. But then it was coming into our house every month. And I got to see what it was. And it was at that point that I started seriously thinking that one day, you know, maybe magazines were something I could do. And you had a yanker in to get to New York City at some point. Yeah, I'd never been there. It seemed like the place I had to go. So the first time I came up was to visit a friend of mine I'd known from the University of Tennessee. That was a short visit. He lived out on Long Island, and we only got into the city one night. And it was like really early 80s, and these guys on Long Island were scared shitless of the city. It was a rough place. <laughs> and I remember they took the wrong bridge, and we ended up in Harlem, and these guys were shaking in their boots. They're like, are we going to make it? And they were, we were trying to go have dinner in Little Italy. And they were worried we weren't going to make it downtown. I don't think it was that dangerous, but they did. That was my first exposure. And Muppet Magazine was in New York, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I did the publishing course at Radcliffe, and that was like a eight-week course or something, and then came down here, where I thought I was going to live with this friend of mine on Long Island and commute in the city to find a job. But his mom misunderstood. He was living with his parents, and his mom misunderstood when he'd asked if I could stay with him. And after like three days, she said, I didn't mean he could stay forever. Okay, so after you got the pink slip at Muppet Magazine, tell us where you went. Give us a quick summary of what happened after that. There's no quick summary. But so luckily, our design director was a woman named Gail Segerstrom, and she had worked for Inside Sports. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a publication backed by the Washington Post. It was a monthly magazine. And it had just amazing ambitions in terms of storytelling. It was run by John A. Walsh, who had run all sorts of things. He'd been managing it at Rolling Stone and helped create the style section of the Washington Post and later went on to basically run ESPN. He created the Modern Sports Center and was their genius for over 20 years. She said, oh, you have to call my friend John Walsh. She'd been his design director in Inside Sports. Called him, long story short, after several months, he hired me to be his research assistant on a history. He'd been fired from his previous job. He was unemployed and had no money. And he got in this gig doing a book that was a history of the Heisman Trophy. Hired me to be his research assistant, and he promised me $1,800 if I would work with him until we completed this thing. I ended up writing about 60% of the book, and then John got stiffed on his fee from the book packager who hired him. So he had to stiff me on his feet because he had two little kids and an apartment he couldn't afford and basically just promised me that he was going to be my guardian angel. And my next three jobs, though all of them were relatively short-lived, came through John's support or connections or whatever. After I worked with him, I went to work for Family Weekly magazine, which was kind of the poor man's, poor woman's parade. <laughs> It's the Sunday supplement for C&D counties. Then that went out of business. And I freelanced unsuccessfully for a little while. Very luckily got a job at Sport Magazine, which was fantastic. It was like the lunatics were running that asylum. It was a great magazine, but the editor-in-chief was the same age I was, which was not even 30, I don't think. The oldest guy was Peter Griffin, who I think was 32. He later became my deputy editor or escort. And I lasted there for about... 18 months, and got it lured away by this sports business magazine called Sports Inc. It was the 80s, business was hot, sports was hot, let's do a weekly sports business trade magazine, which <laughs> was an amazing education because 
you're working with really mostly a talented people, though there were some exceptions, like Richard Sandemer, who's still at the Times. Oh, yeah. But you've got to put out a magazine every week. And I was like in charge of all the writing, or a lot of it. And it was stressful. You learn rewrite really fast. I mean, you asked me about journalism school. I think I learned more in those 18 months of working in a trade magazine than ever before. You'd get a pile of shit that was supposed to be copy, and you had about 12 minutes to turn into an 800-word story. It was a fantastic learning experience. You learned what a story was. So that was good. And that folded right about the time my wife Melanie had twins. So I had another very stressful period of freelancing. And then I think it was through John's intercession, I got an interview at the National Sports Daily, which you're also familiar with. Very, yes. Which was an amazing enterprise to create a newspaper from scratch, a national newspaper from scratch. Who does that? And turned out to be as insane as it seemed, but almost unlimited resources, though not for people like you and me, from all the famous columnists and writers that they hired and the editors that they lured away from all of America's great papers. I think had unlimited resources. We were more like peons, you and I. But it was a great gig and great, great learning experience. I got to work with Rob Flater on all the feature stories and then had some side gigs as well. So that lasted 18 months before that was blown up. Let's go back to Walsh just briefly. What a guardian angel to have. I had one meeting with him back in the day. I was at Disney. He was at ESPN. And what an intimidating presence in the room he was to me. Um, Can I briefly tell you the story of my first meeting with John? Go right ahead. Do what's first encounter has got to be quite memorable. So as Gail suggested, I called John. He picks up the phone. I explain who I am and that Gail had told me to call. And he says, call me in a month. And so many young people are going to do that. I actually called back in a month. But put it in my calendar. A month later, I called him. And it turned out the day I first called him, he had just found out that Group W Broadcasting was not going to finance his attempt to create a competitor to ESPN. He'd been working on that for months. And so I happened to call him at a bad time. So I call him a month later and he says, okay, meet me for drinks on Friday, five o'clock, the Oak Room Bar at the Plaza. I go, well, how I recognize? He goes, I'll be in a brown sports car. I'm like, what? So I get to the Oak Room. I get a table near a window so I can look out on Park Avenue South for a brown sports car to drive up. I'm there for about half an hour nursing a beer because, you know, I was unemployed. I think I had $11 to get me through the weekend. And I'm nursing a beer, nursing, nursing. I hear the bartender scream out, David Granger, is there David Granger in the house? I raise my hand. This albino walks over to the table and he says, let's get away from this window. So we go back into a darkened corner of the bar. There's a candle on the table and he immediately blows out the candle. And he starts talking, he starts asking me questions about myself, but he won't look at me. You know, I'm thinking, this guy hates me. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out, albinos, most of them, light, really irritates their eyes. So he listens to me for a while, and he says, okay, I might have something for you. Meanwhile, I'm still nursing my beer. He's had one, two, three, four vodkas, and I'm stressing. I have $11. This is before I ever qualified for a credit card. I didn't have an ATM card. It was like $11. Then he calls for the check. I said, no, no, I, I'll get this. Because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Somebody's doing you a favor. And he goes, how much you make? And I said, before I got fired, I was making $11,000. <laughs> he goes, nobody who made $11,000 is buying me a drink. <laughs> I was like, thank you, Lord. 
Thank you, Jesus. And that was my first encounter with John A. Walsh, the great John A. Walsh. So then you go from the Sports Weekly, yeah. an insane situation, to a daily that yeah. was very exciting as one who was part of it and a little insane too. What'd you do there? What'd you do at the National? Well, Rob Flater and I, Rob was my boss, we were tasked with creating and publishing a magazine-style feature-length story every day that the National published, which I believe was five days a week. Yes, indeed. Or was it six? I can't remember. I think it started at six and we went to five. Yeah, we went to five. So anyway, we were supposed to do five 5,000-word feature story every week. And we had a staff of four, four writers, and me and Rob. And then, of course, Frank DeFord said, and you can use any of the writers out in the newsroom. They're all going to want to work for you. I think Ed Hinton was the only one who really wanted to work for us. So then Rob put a calendar on the wall. It was the next 12 months. And he just said, okay, those are the spaces we have to fill in with stories. And it was hard. It was daunting. And we had no real freelance budget. It was use our four guys, well, three guys and a woman, John N. Howard, Charlie Pierce, Peter Richmond, and Ian Thompson, and just get them on the road. And in the 18 months that we were a business, Charlie did, if I remember right, I think 49 5,000-word feature stories. And that included travel and church writing. Peter Richmond was just behind him with like 47 or 48, and the other two did an equal number. And then we just begged among the writers on staff to fill in the holes. And it was a lot of work, but it was fantastic and what an education. You got to work with amazing writers on ambitious stories. And Rob had been a longtime editor at Sports Illustrated, features editor, great editor. I learned so much from him and it was great. And the most exciting part of that was that we were like the little magazine corner of the National. Yes. The National was a newspaper. Yes. It was by newspaper guys. And especially guys like Van McKenzie did not understand why Frank was wasting those four to six pages every week on feature stories by the guys in the magazine part of it. And they were clearly trying to take none of my territory and the paper away from us. But at one point, Rob was on vacation and Van informed me that they were taking Rob's office away from him. And I had to call him on vacation and tell him. <laughs> well, my man. And I don't know if you remember Rob, but great, great man. A little tightly wound. Yeah, just a bit. Sure. Well, those stories were that, that section that made it just much more than a daily paper, I thought really balanced out the publication and gave some depth to what was otherwise a publication full of news and all kinds of small entry points. And yeah. columns, lots of voices, and enabled uh, the paper to do some interesting cover stories. Were you involved with the Bill Murray that story? Was not directly. That was Peter Richmond's idea. He was on our staff, and I think Rob must have edited it. I did not have any involvement in it, but I just remember when Peter went to Chicago and attended a game or something with Bill, but I didn't edit that story. Why do you ask? The reason I ask is because I know you ended up working with Murray at Esquire, and he appeared in those pages on occasion. And I'll never forget, there were so many memorable days and events in that short-lived national, but the day Bill Murray came to the office and just started cracking on everybody walking around, it was like he had no handler, no leash. He just showed up in the newsroom and went wild. Were you there that day? I was not there that day. Sorry about it. I got to be friendly with Bill during my time at Esquire, and he'd never had a handler. Bill just walks through the world. You know, he told me last time I had a significant sit-down with him. He just said, I don't worry. I just 
things will be okay. And that's the way he walks through the world. Speaking of worry, I recall lots of pronouncements that the National was about to go under. And then after the Wall Street Journal finally did a story that said it looked like we're in pretty good shape, we went under just a few months after. How did you react to that? That kind of came out of the blue for all of us, I think. Yeah. My main concern was what I was going to do. Like I said, when I lost one job, it was when my wife and I just had twin daughters. And when I lost the national job, we just bought our first house in Westchester and moved my family up there. So it was a little daunting. And Melanie, who was a librarian at NYU, had firm plans to leave that job. <laughs> so we were faced with the prospect of no income. But these things always work out, a little stressed. I, you know, but I was in mourning for losing the national because it was a great gig and I worked with great people. But at that point, it was just, I got to find work. And my friend, Craig Reese, had just been named the editor of Ad Week and Media Week and Brand Week. And he asked me to come be his number two and essentially run all the features in those magazines. And I did that. And the first day I was in the office, I remember looking out to this newsroom and realizing that once again, I was at a trade magazine where there was very little talent and I had to put out not one, but three magazines a week. <laughs> and I thought my chest was going to explode. Uh, but blessedly, on the second day I was there, I got a phone call from a guy at Condé Nast named Art Cooper, the editor of GQ Magazine, who said, everybody tells me I need to hire you. <laughs> wow. That's a great call to get. Out of the blue, not, had you ever met him? Never met him. And it was, again, John A. Walsh, Frank DeBoard, and the guy whose job he was sort of trying to fill, Kaplan, all of them had said, do you got to talk to David Granger? Because I guess at the National, it shown that I could do some feature stuff and all that. So I think that was day two at Adweek, and it took me over a month to convince Art that I was I actually was the right guy to hire, and then he offered me $15,000 less than I was making just as a test to see how much I wanted to work for GQ. Uh, and eventually, I bailed on my friend Craig and joined the glossy magazine world. And not without first helping a few refugees from the National come aboard over at Adweek Media Week at George Brewery. <laughs> And uh, let's give a shout out to Scott Robson. Uh, I haven't yeah, right. even heard that name in many, many years. But, And I do think that between the time you called me and I got there, you, you were out of there. Yeah, I, uh, as I said, it was my second day when I got the call from Art. And I think I was gone in just about a month from that day. So I'm sorry to abandon you. Well, it worked out fine. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Mag Culture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com. And, okay, so at GQ, I believe you were executive editor, arts number two? No, 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 I was never number two. The title was like assistant managing editor. There was art, and then there was Marty Beiser, who was like whatever the number two was, and then... Lisa Hintelman, and then a few assistant managing editors, two or three assistant managing editors. Now it's one of those. I wasn't the top guy. Late in my time there, I think Art sort of saw me as his protege, but I never had the official title of protege. Okay, so then let's get to Esquire. You apparently wrote a letter to Kathy Black. Yeah, I'd been at GQ for five plus years. I mean, a great opportunity. I got to work with all these amazing 
writers that I brought into the magazine. But I was eager to try to run my own show, and I kept auditioning for editor-in-chief jobs. Internally, I was considered for the details job, which went to Michael Caruso. I auditioned for a couple others, including the top job at Civilization, the magazine oh, yeah. library of Congress. And my advice to them was they should stop using both the words library and Congress if they were going to have a successful magazine. I don't think I was offered that job. But all this time, I'd been thinking about Esquire, longing for Esquire. It had been my first magazine as a man. And I'd kept a very close eye on it. And it was dying when I was at GQ. I mean, GQ was kicking its ass, especially in terms of fashion advertising. Men's Health had come on the scene and was kicking its ass in terms of a lot of the lifestyle stuff and active living stuff. It was dying. And it was also badly run. It was not a good magazine. It was very New York-centric. Looked at his nose at the readers. And I read this story on the front page of the business section of the New York Times about the then editor of Esquire, and the first sentence was, Ed Kosner is going to miss this office. And it was basically prophesying the departure of Ed and maybe the demise of Esquire. And I'd been watching and longing for Esquire, but that kind of kick-started me, and I started writing this letter to Kathy Black, who'd just recently become the new president of Hearst Magazines, explaining that I knew three things that none of the previous three editors of Esquire had been aware of, and that those th three things were a formula for Esquire's success. And so I wrote this letter and just agonized over it, and I was so freaked out about how to get it to her. I didn't want to give it to the messenger service at Cunning Ask, because you know, so who knows what happens to it. So <laughs> I walked it over to the address from the masthead of Esquire, and I just assumed that's what Hearst was. Of course, they were in a separate building, so I left it with the guys at the desk down there. <laughs> Only later realized it was the wrong building, went back and grabbed it from and took it over to the main tower, left it with someone who eventually got it to Kathy. And then a couple of days later, I started calling her. I just started calling her number. And then her secretary would say that she'd get back to me. She never did. I'd call again. I'd call again. I'd call again. Finally, at some point, she picked up and I said, oh, hey, it's uh, David Granger, uh, editor at GQ. I wrote you a letter about Esquire. I was just wondering if you'd be interested in talking with me. And there was this pause, this long pause. And then she said, not really. Oh, oh roasted. And then she went on to say that she was very supportive of all their editors and there are no plans for any changes and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so I was devastated because I was on the verge of turning 40. And I figured either the magazine was going to go out of business or somebody else would get it. And by the time that person failed, I'd be too old to get the magazine, had all those thoughts. But there was no way for me to make another approach. And like a year later, this guy started calling my office. Ed Kosner got fired, and some guy named Michael Wolf came calling him off. It wasn't the media guy. It was a consultant who worked for Booz Allen Hamilton. And I didn't know who he was. So I kept telling my assistant to take a message. He called like five times. Then it was 5.30. My assistant was gone phone rings, I pick it up. He says, oh, it's Michael Wolf." And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't get back to you. How can I help you? He said, I was just wondering if you want to have lunch with Kathy Black tomorrow. <laughs> like, I'm really sorry I didn't get back to you. And the next day I had lunch with Kathy and it was one of the most intimidating lunches I've ever had. It was in the corporate dining room of Hearst and there was a guy with a thing in his ear and I thought he was like security or something. Turns out he was just the guy who ran the dining room. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was intimidated, and he'd go in, and he'd sit at William Randolph's first boardroom table on the corner with waiters and all this kind of stuff. And it was fantastic conversations, like an hour and a half, really intense. But at the end of it, she said, well, do you have any thoughts? And I said, yeah, I'm just glad I wrote you that letter. And it was clear to me she had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> wow, those three things didn't matter, whatever they were. I don't remember what they were, but they found the letter later, and it became part of their PR that I had had the gumption to write this letter. Yep, yep, it's a rags and riches story. So you get to Esquire, you've got the job, pretty exciting, I would imagine. Yeah, her life, man. I was four but years you, old. Well, and you saw a magazine that was broken and needed to be fixed. You had a plan. You fixed it. What did you learn quickly that maybe you hadn't been told about that job? What were the big surprises, if any? Before I got it into that job, I knew exactly what I needed to do. Kathy had asked me to write up a plan, and part of that plan was I had to write and annotate my first three tables of content. I had to explain my cover strategy and what my first three covers would be, all this kind of stuff. I knew exactly what to do, right? You get in there and you start having meetings with circulation people and ad sales people, and they all know exactly what you're supposed to do. And it's not anything like what your idea was. Now, it's like they know because all these things have been tried over and over again for 60, 70, 100 years. They know exactly what doesn't work. They just have no freaking idea what does work. But the thing that any young editor is going to be faced with is that everybody second guesses you. You have two issues when they go, oh, that's interesting, that's interesting. And then on the third issue, it's, it's pure second guessing. Every meeting is called to tell you what you're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing you don't understand. You think you're going to get a long runway. <laughs> and you get to execute and really, for the first couple issues, the covers were bare, man. There was not a single story. We were supposed to be putting out the fashion issue. There hadn't been a single fashion portfolio shot. There was not a cover planned. And we had like four weeks to get that issue closed. You had to beg for steel. So any thought you have that you're going to plan anything is... And then, of course, I fired everybody the first day I got there. And so I had like four people helping me try to put out a magazine in four weeks. And so it's just pure panic. And then you're getting second guest every day of your life. So it takes a while and you have to be under the threat of being fired before you just decide, I'm going to do what I'm proud of because I'm going to get fired anyway. But luckily, I made a couple of good hires. I hired Peter Griffin, who is the smartest man alive, the best editor I've ever worked with. And he agreed to come on on a temporary basis. And then I hired writers, basically all of whom moved over from GQ to Esquire. So I had a core group of people that I could bounce stuff off of. And then Lisa Hintelman came over from GQ and I finally got Helene Rubenstein. He was at another Condé Nast magazine to come over and he assembled a little core of a support group and things start to happen. But it was like three years before anything good really happened. And I got to tell you, I guess there was a little bit of a patience, but that patience ran out the time of my second budget meeting. My first budget meeting, I got the job in June. The budget season always starts in September. So a year from that first September, I'd done 15 issues and we'd done a couple questionable covers, but the cover that was on the budget book was my Mr. Rogers cover. It was like Fred Rogers. This was a long time ago and it was shot by Dan Winters. So it was an eccentric photo and it was Mr. Rogers. I mean, it was Mr. Rogers. 
It was the hero's issue, and it was a really good issue. But we get into that budget meeting, we go through it, everything's fine. And Kathy says to my publisher and everybody else, Valerie, you guys can go. David, would you stay for a minute? And she and her number two, Mark Miller, were <laughs> sitting there, and they pick up the Fred Rogers cover, and they go, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> wow, welcome to the neighborhood. Yeah, and that was when I realized that I was not long for Esquire magazine. But I managed at that point to kind of nut up and do the things that I really wanted to and the things that I thought Esquire should be doing. And I got a little more time and things really started to turn around. It took two years, but things started to turn around. That's interesting about having such a detailed plan, knowing what you wanted to do. It reminds me of the old, yeah, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> uh, that's exactly right. Yeah. And that's very interesting that you had to create your own table of contents. That's an intriguing exercise. It was an amazing weekend. She gave me that assignment on the Friday of Memorial Day and told me that she wanted it on Tuesday. And it wasn't just like the TOC. It was like marketing plans for Esquire. It was staffing plans. It was an intense weekend. But luckily, I'd been up for the details job, I'd been up for the civilization job, a couple others, and I had all these plans I'd written up for those people. So I scavenged those, and then I called all my writers, took them in my confidence, and begged them for ideas. It was an intense weekend. But it's helpful to have a plan, even though pretty soon that plan's no longer of any use. Yeah, the punch in the face. You mentioned Helene Rubenstein. I, I haven't been shadowing you your entire career, but Helene hired me when I made my big move from Knoxville to New York. She hired me in 1989 at Us Magazine. I became wow. music editor and worked there for a year or so before I went over to the National. So interesting how different paths have crossed. What was your favorite part of the job as editor of Esquire? There are a lot of things to love. I loved having access to most people that I wanted to talk to. I loved working with writers. I loved having a full-time staff of like 40 people and then another 10 or 15 people who were regular contract people who came to me every day with stuff I should be reading or stuff I should listen to or ideas for what we should do with the magazine. People were incredibly passionate about working in Esquire. But ultimately, I think starting in 2006, I loved the fact that we just decided to make Esquire a laboratory for trying to figure out what a magazine was capable of beyond what magazines had traditionally been capable of. And that was 2006, and that was just as everybody was saying that the internet was going to destroy all forms of print. And we just had to prove that that wasn't true. And so we used things like the internet to drive more people to the magazine. We played with all sorts of insane technical innovations, like the first magazine cover on which words and images moved, and that was in 2008. We did the first augmented reality issue of a magazine. But even more than that, we just played with what a magazine was capable of inside. And we used every bit of the magazine. Like nobody since Mad Magazine used the margins. So we started using the margins. We published an entire short story in the bottom margin of the magazine one time. We just started playing with the physical properties of the magazine, paper and ink and words and images, and just seeing what we could do. We once did three covers on this issue about the state of the American man, and we had images up close facial images of Justin Timberlake, George Clooney, and Barack Obama all shot by Martin Schuller. And we perforated the three of them so you could just tear them apart and create 27 different faces of what the American man looked like. I mean, it was simple stuff, but nobody did it. And we just had a billion freaking ideas. We created our own 
apps to turn magazine content, not web content, into something that could be shared on Twitter or emailed or texted or whatever. It was amazing the amount of video we did, especially when we had the iPad app and the iPad was going to be the salvation of magazines. We did movie trailers for every issue of a print magazine. We just had so much fun. And I think the ability to just play with possibility was the best thing about my job. And the people who helped me with it, Peter Griffin, David Kirk Reno, my design director, Rich Storm, and all the young editors, Ryan and Ross and Tyler Cabot and everybody. It was just a laboratory, man. It was fun. Yeah, that's a wonderful way of putting it. Playing with possibilities, we certainly did. It was fun, innovative. I remember your iPad app, if it was even called that when it first <laughs> came out, was extremely innovative for its time. The digital cover, very interesting and fun stuff. How hands-on were you with copy, writing headlines, captions? You have people doing all that and you're signing off on it. What was your role with that? It depends on what kind of copy. I was very hands-on with the little stuff because the little stuff is the most important stuff. Of course, headlines and subheads are incredibly important because that determines in a lot of cases whether people are going to read anything. But like captions and all the little tiny items that are in the front of the book and all the marginalia we started doing, that's the stuff that everybody's going to read because it's short, it's easy. And there was a guy who ran Entertainment Weekly named Jim Seymour back in the 90s, I guess. And sure. It was one of the great magazines because he demanded such excellence from all the little stuff. I remember admiring that so much. And the big stuff, it's hard in its own way, but it's the little things that people are going to remember or they're going to enjoy. And it establishes not just a voice, but a whole environment of entertainment. You want a magazine to be a, an enjoyable entertainment experience, and it's those little things that do that. When it came to feature stories, Peter Griffin and I, Peter had worked at Time Inc. And, you know, that was editing by committee at Time Inc. A story would go through three layers at least of editors before it hit the page. And Peter and I wanted our editors to be responsible for their own stories. Their writers had to see them as the ultimate arbiters of it. That's what we wanted. We backstopped them. Peter did amazing jobs helping people with their edits on things. And I read and approved everything. And sometimes I was hands-on. By the end, I was only editing one or two writers full-time. But I read everything. And if necessary, I would try to help. But yeah, I was pretty hands-on on everything, especially anything that was display. Like working on covers, best day of the month. Mm. Me and Kirk Rito and Griffin are sitting in Kirk's office, order lunch. And sometimes that day would stretch into three or four days. But those were the funnest days ever, especially because covers always suck. They suck and they suck and they suck <laughs> until they don't. You know? At some point, hey, tell, tell, tell us about how you guys came up with those crazy type covers. I think that was starting around 2006, the wall of type. Yeah, that was right around that time. It was like 2006. So we had this guy, Daniel Craig, who was going to be on our September cover. And it was a big chance. That was before he'd become Bond. The reason we put him on the cover was because he was going to be in his first Bond movie. And the word out of England was, this guy sucks. So we'd do a photo shoot with him. And... The photos are miserable. The guy has one facial expression. He's pursed lips. And I'm thinking, this is a failure. But on the other hand, I look back at the cover before it, and it was just one of those magazine covers. John McCain was on the cover, and it had a number on it, and it had 
some traditional magazine cover lines, and I was so sick of that. And I knew Daniel Craig was going to fail because he was going to be the worst Bond ever and he had this pursed lip look on his face, right? And so I went into Kirk Rito's office and I was like, you're going to have to save this. And he goes, well, what do I do? And I go, look, I want you to create something that looks like the Vietnam War Memorial behind Daniel Craig. I'll give you all the words. You just create this wall of type. And I want it to look like the Vietnam War Memorial. And he goes, okay, okay, give me the lines. And I wrote all these sentences. They weren't sentence fragments like most cover lines are. They were full, complete sentences. Like, oh, it's been five years since 9-11. Nothing's happened and we're still pissed off. Lines like that. You know, like full sentences. And I gave all these lines to Kirk. It was a lot of words. And about an hour later, he comes into my office and he goes, I don't understand. And I go, come on, man. Like the Vietnam War Memorial. And I stand up in front of the wall and I just... Words all over. He goes, I've never seen the Vietnam War Memorial. <laughs> so we started calling up pictures of Myelin's like masterpiece. And he was like, oh. And so he started doing that. And then he varied the sizes of the types and the emphasis. And we created this wall of type behind Daniel Craig. And it did amazingly well. And for the rest of the time we were there, with certain exceptions, we just loaded it up. The type became the point of the cover. It was like, this is a magazine of ideas and words. Let's show that on the cover. Yeah, we have this famous person, but let's show what we're about in the words that are adorning and overwhelming the cover. And then we did stuff like we blew up the Esquire logo so that it couldn't be contained by the cover. Because Esquire is a bigger idea than can be contained in any magazine cover or magazine. Yeah, you start messing with it. You were asking about, or maybe I was just blathering on about little stuff and attention to details and stuff like that. I hated when a page only did one thing. I mean, in feature stories, it's okay. But like a front of the book page, I hated when it only did one thing. It's like an essay or something, a column. And I always wanted there to be like three or four things that were interesting on that page. And so there was this guy, a young editor, and when I get particularly frustrated with a page because it wasn't interesting enough, I take it over to Nate, Nate Hopper, and I go, Nate, would you just fuck this page up for me? And he would. And they got really interesting. Those covers were so memorable. I personally loved them and thought they really stood out. And it's interesting to go on the Esquire archive and look at how they evolved with the different fonts and yeah. the hand-drawn. It was like trial and error. It was experimentation. And some of them weren't very good, but we were trying to be loud. We had this consultant guy, Steve Blacker, and the only thing any circulation consultant ever said to me that stuck was Steve going, look, don't just think about the new, you know, because I was saying, well, you know, maybe we should do newsstand covers, and then do subscriber covers where we don't have as many cover lines. He's going, no, 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 no. It's not just about the newsstand. It's about the homestand. Think about when a magazine comes into your house. It's competing with everything that's on TV. It's competing with games and every other diversion. You've got to draw their attention, and that made sense to me. And so we made our covers as loud as they could be. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible by the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence, and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. Let's just change the pace a little bit, and I'm going to... We're going to play a slow song? Yeah, we're going to slow dance, a little bread. Yeah. Actually, we're going to pick it up a little bit. I'll say something, and then you just tell us the first thing that comes to mind, and you can elaborate. Dubious achievements. That was fraud, baby. That was fraud. It was one of those things that people associated with Esquire, they hadn't read it since like 1968. And we tried to revive it and make it relevant, but this was like when 
Jon Stewart was coming on the air and there was mm. political satire every night. And so Esquire had done this annual issue where they did fake headlines and then the stories that went with it and the real news stories that occasioned those fake headlines. And it was funny in its day. And we tried so hard to make it relevant and failed every time, including like Dave Eggers edited it in the one year that he worked at Esquire. We hired Jay Lovinger, who's a legend from Time Inc., but mostly from John A. Walsh, to come in one year. And we tried everything. It just didn't work, so we killed it. And we killed it right after 9-11. And it just, just didn't seem like it was in sync with the times anymore. And so I got a bunch of nasty letters from people who, as I said, hadn't read us since 1968. <laughs> Eggers had done it once. I'm going to have to look that one up. Sexiest Woman Alive. Scarlett Johansson. When we put women on the cover, we always wanted to give the impression that the women enjoyed the experience and give our readers that, rather than doing the thing that men's magazines are up. It's hard not to do, which is objectify. And so one year we did, over six months, we gave visual clues to who the six oh, yeah. five there. Was, I couldn't see who it was, but it was like in one, she was in her trailer home and on the floor in front of the open refrigerator, and the place was just a mess. All of them were shot in this trailer home in Appalachia somewhere. And one, she was like shaving her legs in the sink, and it just looked like the most down-on-her-luck human being in the world. And it was Scarlett who played all these roles for us and spent like three days shooting this thing just to do this long, slow reveal of who the sexiest woman alive was. It was tons of fun. Lad mags. Yeah, when I got to Esquire, that was when the Lad Mag thing was happening. I can't even remember the names of them anymore. Uh, God. Uh, what? Gem, uh, Maxim. Maxim, 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 Maxim. And that was one of the things that, when I talked about second guessing earlier, all the circulation people, all the ad sales people, that was the thing that they most second guessed me about. It's like, Maxim's successful. FHM's successful. Aren't you guys more like Maxim? Yeah. <laughs> well, and yeah, they're putting Mr. Rogers on the cover. Sure. Yeah. I was at a cocktail party speaking to Mr. Rogers with John Winter once, and I was complaining to him about newsstand sales, and he was commiserating with me until he looked at me and he said, wait a second, you're the guy who put Mr. Rogers on the cover, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I've commiserated with me right then. Were the Lad Mags competition for Esquire? Yes. They were competition for readers and competition for advertisers. And I think one of the reasons that Maxim succeeded was because men's magazines had stopped giving men advice. And even though the advice in Maxim was mostly bad advice, it was advice. And so I think men's magazines had kind of advocated their role of offering guidance. And that was one of the things that I worked really hard with my staff to try to do. I had this Martha Stewart moment once when I was driving to tennis with a friend of mine. And it was in my first couple of years at Esquire. And he goes, how come there's not a Martha Stewart for men? And that day, I went to the library. And I found the last three issues of Martha Stewart. And I read it. And the next morning, I had an emergency meeting. I had the staff come in. And I was like, you guys need to read Martha Stewart. And they're like, what? And I was like, no, no, you got to read it. This magazine is amazing. Because this is what Martha's message is to her readers. I love you. I love your life. And if you follow my advice, your life is going to be better. And I was like, we can to do some of that. <laughs> it was one of those moments when I was like, okay, it's getting a little clearer what I'm supposed to be doing here. Frank DeFord, the editor at The National. Okay, two things. First, one of the 
three greatest sports writers of all time. And one of the great writers of all time. Second, way too nice a guy to be the editor-in-chief of a daily national newspaper. Frank was such a nice man. You know, you got the nice letters from him in purple ink and all that sure. kind of stuff. Sure. He was like a great man. But that led him to say yes to everybody. Even when there were pitch battles at the National, especially the ones I saw between the news side and the magazine side, Frank just said yes to everybody. <laughs> so I love the guy. Just too nice a guy to be an effective editor-in-chief. Art Cooper, editor at GQ. Okay, here's how lunch was with Art. Every once in a while, like two times a year, I'd get invited to lunch with Art. You had to be at the Four Seasons, 1230. Sharp. The second you sat down, vodka martinis, ice cold, are on the table. Art's got an agenda. For every lunch, he had an agenda. He'd usually write it out. He planned his day around lunch. He'd sit there in the morning planning what he was going to be talking about at lunch. So, vodka martini with the first course, a bottle of Chalon Chardonnay with the second course, a bottle of some red that was Julian's choice. As soon as you finish, Art's like, we're heading to the bar because... After a while, they wouldn't let him smoke at the tables anymore. You could still smoke at the bar. Light up a cigarette, have a Sambuca. It's like 3 o'clock, you get back to the office and just hammer, no choice but to put your head down and go to sleep for an hour. Okay, how about art directors in general? It's difficult to generalize about art directors. I think it's rare when there's a perfect meshing of editor-in-chief and art director, and they're equally important to the success of the magazine. Many art directors have their own ideas about, especially magazine design, that may or may not be the best thing for the success of that magazine. But when an editor and an art director work beautifully together, as I did the last 11 years at Esquire with Dave Cucurito, it's freaking magic. You're just like dependent on each other. You make each other so much better. Greatest creative collaboration of my life, and that's the potential of the editor-design director relationship. Great. couple more. A quote of yours. The spread is one of the great, maybe lost, art forms of all time. The spread, the magazine yeah. spread. Yeah, I believe that. There are many things that the internet just can't do, like almost everything. But the design possibilities and the expressive possibilities of a two-page spread in a magazine are just limitless. You can do anything on two pages of a magazine. I mean, I just you take... All the things that a magazine is made up, paper, ink, photos, words, ideas, design, and you just let them go crazy on two pages of a magazine and almost anything is possible. And there's never been anything like that in any other media. Books don't do it. There's nothing like it on the internet, no matter how much they try to be interesting design-wise. Everything scrolls, but there's never that work of art that's also part of a living medium there's an urgency to magazines that they're timely and you create a timely work of art on two pages nothing else can do that there isn't viewing a spread the gaze of the eye is so different than looking at something online the creation of a spread is so different than anything you would create online the anticipation or expectation of turning a page you don't get that online and i think there's a no. real psychology that makes it interesting and your notion of like front of the book stuff making sure a page does more than one thing jesus spread like you said can do so many things the phrase content creation well content is a word that i try not to use i think it's the dirtiest word in the english language especially starting in the mid 
aughts of this century. It's just like content. It's like the great leveler. It's like anything that fills up the space is of equal value. That's what the word content means. It's like, we're going to get some content and put it on this website. What the fuck? You have like, you have articles, you have photos, you have great pieces of writing. It's not content. <laughs> it's something that somebody slaves over, but that's the mindset. It turns out that the medium is the message, right? If you create something that's designed to be read quickly, whether it's on a web page or social media or whatever, it's going to suck more than something that is designed to move somebody and make them rethink the foundations of their life. And a magazine has a potential to create a work of art, a timely work of art, that'll have a profound effect on somebody. Okay. Awards. You've got a few. Yeah. They're nice. They make you feel good. I have this Polaroid of myself sitting in an abandoned folding chair on 8th Avenue holding one of those National Magazine Award statues. That's one of my favorite photos. We had 17. They're on display in the Esquire offices. And on my last day there, I'd stole one just so I could have one. So I guess they mean something to me. How many of those Ellie's can you fit into one briefcase? <laughs> I just took one. I don't know. I don't even remember what I took it out in. You can't plan to win awards. You just try to do really good things. And then every once in a while, it happens. Okay. The slogan, man at his best. Yeah, for a long time, Esquire, its slogan was the magazine for men for most of its life, like up into the late 70s. And then when your boys, Woodland Moffat, took it over, they changed it to Man and His Best. And there was a reason for that. As I said before, Phil Moffat, he had a mission in Esquire, and he was well ahead of his time in that he was really into yoga back in the 70s and 80s. And he believed in the possibility of personal improvement. And that was one of his main goals for the magazine, kind of like my Martha Stewart moment. He wanted to help people improve their lives. And he changed the slogan of the magazine to Man at His Best. And when I got to Esquire, I think they'd gone back to the magazine for men. And I know that they scrapped Man at His Best. And as soon as I could, I changed it back to Man at His Best in homage to Moffat, but also because I wanted it to express part of our attention for the magazine. I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't ask at least one fashion question, and I'm not one okay. to delve into fashion, but, you know, I think you've got some experience with it. What's the best men's fashion tip you learned while you were at Esquire? That's a hard one, because when I was at GQ, Tom Gino wrote this piece called My Father's Fashion Tips. His father thought he was Sinatra, and he had very strict rules about fashion, and the piece was built around five of his father's fashion tips, and the one that stands up to me the most is always wear white to the face. It just shows off your face. Your face is your greatest asset. Always wear white to the face. It's like putting a spotlight on your face. But almost equally relevant and true is another of Lou Gennad's fashion tips is the turtleneck is the most flattering thing a man can wear. <laughs> it's just true. I mean, in Esquire, I learned a lot of the details. I learned a lot of the history. But I started being aware of what I wore when I was working in a sport magazine. I saw a picture of myself sitting at dugout with Dave Parker, the great red slugger, and I was wearing like some shitty blue pants and a shitty checked short sleeve. And I realized, man, no wonder athletes hate sports writers. You know? <laughs> and from that moment on, I decided that I was going to dress at least as well as the people I planned to meet that day. 
Well, I got to tell you, I'm very glad you didn't show up today with a tie and a jacket on. Okay, thank you. Let's move into really my final section here, the section of today and the future. What's wrong with the magazine business today? (laughs) Uh, What's wrong is that everybody lost faith in the vitality and vibrancy and validity of the medium. And that started with the magazine companies. You know, when everybody went running toward the inevitable payday that was the aggregation of content and gathering a huge audience and believing that advertising would flow if you just presented a large audience to the world, everybody ran in that direction. Hearst, Cunning S, Time Inc., they all abandoned their print products and started investing in digital because, of course, digital was the future, even though there were already players who were going to kick their asses who were dominating that space. It's like, if you can't win the game, play another game. And they abandoned the game that they were good at. And so that filters down to everybody. When the business side is shaky, editors and writers are less likely to take chances editorially, right? Because you do something that gives offense to an advertiser or to readers, and you're putting the viability of the business at risk. So that's a big thing. But then the rise of social media and the fact that everybody has a platform that has the potential to spread worldwide in an instant also makes editors and writers a little scared. It takes a lot to stand up to the mob when somebody decides that something one of your writers has written is offensive in one way or another, or racist, or sexist, or whatever. And the ability to stand up to that sort of invisible mob is hard, and it causes a lot of people to play really safe. There are a lot of pressures on magazine editors and writers to play safe. It's the same in most media. It takes a lot more courage to stand up for what you believe in and the highest forms of expression now than it did when I was an editor-in-chief. Well, you know, we're on a podcast called Print is Dead, Long Live Mm -hmm. Print, and sometimes... My thinking is, you know, geez, the magazine business is, is long gone. But there are still some great magazines out there that are first and foremost print magazines. New York Magazine is still excellent. The New Yorker. I think the new Sports Illustrated works. The Atlantic, on and on. They're still there. They still come in my mailbox. Is there ever a chance we're going to see more magazines or, or a revitalization of the industry? It's hard for print to be as vital as it was because there's not a robust advertising base, and for better or worse, mostly better a long time ago and worse more recently, advertising was 85 to 90% of a magazine's revenues. So if advertising goes away and you don't have the pages, you just don't have the resources to do what could be done in the 90s and the early 2000s into the 20-teens. And it's just, it's hard. I love it when I see little magazines popping up I got to help this magazine, Racket, which is this high-quality tennis magazine. I got to help them get started, and I'm amazed that they've been able to sustain it. But they sustain it not through the traditional magazine metrics of advertising and circulation. They must sustain it through doing events for advertising partners or for just folks with a lot of dough. And so that's a little different, and it's also a reason not to give offense. When you're being sustained by your sponsors, it's a little harder to do anything that's really risky. There's always going to be great magazines. Every year I judge a City Regional Magazine contest, and there's always 
really good, really surprising stuff. And a few years ago, I went to one of their conventions. There are just as many city regional magazines, I think, as there were 15 years ago. Yeah. I know a surprising number of writers, surprising to me because I'm ignorant, that the authors I'm working with, like at least two or three of them right now are doing pieces for alumni magazines. And there's a vibrancy there. And do you guys actually pay enough money that writers want to spend some time doing that? Which is often hard to do with the commercial magazines to make a living. So yeah, there's always going to be room for magazines to thrive. They're just not as big a force as they once were, and it'll be very hard to make them that. It's very interesting what you say about alumni magazines as a longtime alumni magazine editor. It is a different animal than the consumer magazine world. And I think that the talent that's available to those of us running alumni magazines is greater now because there's less yeah. consumer magazines for these people to go and work at. And we do have some money. Right. And I think things have gotten better. What is really great in the research that we put out to our readers is they're not saying we don't want print, we want to read it online. They want their print magazine and it's almost a luxury these days. And yeah. again, that's conflated with a lot of emotions about their school and blah, 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 blah. But the love of the print magazine, it's there and yeah. it's cool to see. Yeah, it is there. But I remember doing focus groups and it's there to a level. And I remember watching readers go, man, I'd love Esquire. And they would know particular writers and they would remember specific pieces. And they would talk about the things they love in every issue. And then at the end of the thing, the guy would say, so, are you going to resubscribe? And he'd go, nah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going right. to come into your pocket for $15 or whatever it is. That's well, not that much money, but there's some weird disconnect there. But you know, I don't know about people's love for print. I see that in the book business. All the growth in books over the last 10 years, this exploded in the last two and a half, is in hardcover sales. Audiobooks are growing slowly. Ebooks have completely flattened out. Together, they're only like 12% of the book market. And hardcovers are where all the growth is. And there's something that people like about that. Yeah, well, I understand that. I love having a book in my hands, and ebooks aren't the same. Tell us what you are doing now, speaking of long live print. <laughs> yeah, I work in the book business. I'm a literary agent. I've been doing that for six years, and it's been good. It's been good. The thing that struck me after getting tossed out of the magazine business was. When I started having meetings with book people, there was, especially at the executive levels, there was like genuine optimism. And I hadn't felt that in the executive levels of mm. the Hearst Corporation for a long time with regard to magazines. And so it was refreshing that top editors and top executives, they could see that they were in a growing business. It's not a huge business, but it was a big business and growing. And so there's optimism, there's willingness to make investments. They're running scared in certain ways too, but it's a business where its leaders know there's an upside. And that was refreshing for me as somebody who wants to catalyze creativity. Could you share a project you worked on or are working on now? Yeah, I could bore you to tears for like several minutes. <laughs> What's the most exciting project you've worked on since you left magazines? Can I give you two? Okay, the first one that was probably the most fun and made me feel like I was part of the cultural conversation was we got chosen to represent this guy, Andrew McCabe, who was the deputy director of the FBI. And then Trump savaged him and his wife and fired him. And I got chosen to help represent him. 
And as soon as we got the gig and won the beauty contest, I flew to D.C. and spent two days with Andy in his living room and just interviewed him and started writing the proposal. And then we ended up turning it over to a writing team. But we did the book fast. We got it out in a timely manner, and it hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list, which is tons of fun. The thing that I'm most excited about right now is that three of my writers have written a novel that is the funniest, most intentionally offense-giving piece of writing I've read in a very long time. It comes out November 8th. I don't know what else is happening on November 8th. There may be like some elections going on or something, but I think the event of the day is that The Lemon, it's called The Lemon by S.E. Boyd, is publishing on November 8th, and it takes shots at everybody who deserves to have shots taken at it. It's set in the world of high-end cuisine, but goes quickly into the cynical world of big-time media and the fame industry, the celebrity industry, and it's just, it's hilarious. You zip right through it, and it's fantastic, and it's made like 15 books you have to read this fall lists and gotten amazing advanced reviews. I just hope when it comes out in November, the reviews are as fantastic as they've been so far. But anyway, it was great working with three authors, creating a pseudonymous new author and creating a book that I think is going to be very successful, The Lemon by S.E. Boyd. Got it. You sound very engaged and into what you're still doing. It's fun, man. Okay. We at, at Print is Dead, Long Live Print have learned that when Steve Jobs died, he left a gazillion dollars that he wants David Granger to use to create a magazine. <laughs> Apparently you were on his radar screen, had no idea. Maybe it was that digital cover you did. Anyways. No, he blackballed us from ever getting advertising. He blackballed for 12 years during Apple's biggest growth spurt from ever getting a page of Apple advertising. He never gave Esquire credit for the fact that he knew a turtleneck was the best way to go every day. <laughs> okay, so you got oodles of money. You do a print magazine. What would you do? That's that's such a hard question. There was a time that I really wanted to do a magazine called Magazine. Terrific title. <laughs> it harkened back to the French word for a department store, which I believe is magazine. And it's just like... It's got a, a little everything, but kind of the best of everything. And if it was stipulated that this money was to go to creating a magazine, I think I would create a magazine. And I'd know who I'd want to be my business partner in it, but I would need so much help at the digital and social aspects of making a print magazine successful that I'd be a little daunted and have to find just the right person. But yeah, I think I would create a magazine. For more information and to find out what's next for David Granger, visit avidascreative.com. We have some exciting news. Print is Dead, Long Live Print has joined Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, a nonprofit association of audio storytellers dedicated to promoting and sustaining high quality independent podcasting, including Soonish a show from tech journalist Wade Rausch that looks at how our choices about technology shape the future. In a recent episode titled This is How You Win the Time War, Soonish looked at time as a form of technology. Wade spoke to one activist who argues that New England should buy itself more evening sunlight by moving into the Atlantic Standard Time Zone alongside the maritime provinces of Canada. We should let time boss us around, you know what I mean? We should, we should be in charge of it, not or television shows or anything else. It, it's it's never a bad idea to take a step back and think to yourself, is this, is this how I want to live my life? 
For more, visit soonishpodcast.org or find it wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to connect more deeply with our guests, be sure to visit our website where we have complete transcripts of all our interviews, along with portfolios, archival photos, links, and other great information. Visit longliveprint.co slash interviews for more. In other news, we've got swag. Yep, you can get Print is Dead merch on our site at longliveprint.co slash shop. All purchases go directly to supporting the podcast. Check back often. We're adding new stuff all the time. And finally, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter by using the form on our homepage. It's the best way to stay up to date on all of the Print is Dead news and to receive advance notice on the latest episodes. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. One, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, printisdead.co. Or if you're an optimist, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at printisdeadpod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening.